Darren, you've got a ponytail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I haven't cut my hair for like eight months. <laughs> that, that was that was shocking. Ten months. I haven't, I haven't cut my hair this year. Welcome to the latest episode. Of, uh... <laughs> Lost count, have we? <laughs> I haven't a clue. What do you reckon? Could 70, be 80. 80. I don't know. Let's have a look. Just just to go on the internet. Waste. Oh, damn it. Don't, okay. God, don't waste time. Se- where, se- 78. I'm Rebecca Black. Should I sit in the front seat, back seat? Ser- gotta get my bowl. Cereal. Who are you? What? What? Introduce yourself. Um, I'm um, I'm Alan Fiducia. <laughs> That's it. And I have some postmodern thoughts on paleontology. Oh, I'd love to hear them. Would you write a book on it? <laughs> postmodern. Look, it's a. Uh, a few people have told me that that oh, dog's kicking off someone at the door. <laughs> Can you hear Teddy barking his little? Oh head? yeah, yeah. Oh well. Yes, yeah. Apparently, uh, romancing the birds and dinosaurs is an instruction manual on how to <laughs> get it on, <laughs> get it on with those sexy, sexy ornithodirons. I did look that up, and I couldn't find the origin of romancing the something. Romance. I mean, I probably stone. Spent... Yeah, I know. But why is romancing the stone called romancing the stone? Because. It's an odd turn um, of phrase, and I thought it might come from something, but I, in my ten minutes of research, I didn't find out what it was. Well, it is described in the film. Um, the only character's name I can remember is Kathleen Turner's name. She's called Jean Wilder, and uh, Danny DeVito's character, whose name I can't remember, explains how. Um, what's the main bad guy called? The main, not main bad guy. The main uh, like male love interest. Uh, uh, Oh, he's married to Catherine Zeta-Jones <laughs> in real life. Yeah, yeah, him. <laughs> him. Oh, my God, I forgot his name. Um, Michael uh, Douglas. Danny, Michael Douglas. Danny DeVito says that Michael Douglas says to, to Kathleen Turner's character that, 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 that Michael Douglas's character was romancing the stone out from underneath her. So he like ah. just pretended to fall in love with her to romance the stone, which is uh, the thing that... Okay, <laughs> that's so it's an actual time. line from the film. All right. a, that's a line from the film. Um, yes, yeah, so, so, some of you won't know what the hell we're talking about, but uh, a, a small section of you uh, will. Uh, I, I, I don't want to talk about that. But, uh, yeah, well, it's too late. We have talked about it, so you have to say what it is. Yeah, so but that'll do let let, no, no, let because the... people have to know vaguely what it is uh, okay if you're at all interested in uh, dinosaurs and specifically in bird origins there's a small group of researchers who have since the late 1970s protested against the idea that birds might be dinosaurs they want di- they want birds to have evolved from non-dinosaurian reptiles of some kind little climbing things of some sort they've only got a kind of vague notions of what of what animals they're talking about and the best known of these researchers is alan fiducia and uh, he's been publishing the same stuff for years and years saying that saying that none of the 
bird-like non-bird dinosaurs or anything to do with birds. They're clearly Velociraptor and Dononychus. They're nothing to do with birds at all. Birds clearly come from something else, little climbing reptiles. And then obviously as the feathered uh, dromaeosaurs and oviraptorosaurs and whatnot started coming in from China from 1996 onwards, Fiducia and his colleagues have said, oh, actually, no, no, those ones are birds. It's the other dinosaurs that are nothing to do with birds. So they now have it that that he's been running this shtick for, for, for years now, the idea that um, dromaeosaurs and all other feathered dinosaurs are flightless birds and they're not anything to do with actual dinosaurs. Yeah. And, um, the, 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 and he's just published a new book. It's not actually uh, available in print form yet. It will be, I think, in a couple of weeks. Uh, romancing the Dinosaurs and Birds or romancing something? Romancing the Birds and Dinosaurs with the <laughs> subtitle above the title Forays in Postmodern Paleontology. Oh, my God. Um, there's, there's a, there's a, a whole um, science philosophizing like rabbit hole that one could go down here. I don't, I don't doubt it on, on what, what one might mean by postmodern paleontology. But what he's basically saying, without having read the book or seen the book, of course, is he seems to be saying that all of these modern paleontologists, they're just building castles in the air. It's all like airy-fairy, sandcastle nonsense. They're all a bunch of like spoilt little children running around with crayons. And everything's been inspired by the back-of-a-napkin doodlings of the drug-addled 60s when Robert Backer, one day in a restaurant, saw the shape of a Dinonychus in some ketchup. And, and from there, the dinosaur renaissance was born. And uh, and we're all just idiot kids obsessed with films and Pokemon Go and Adventure Time. And I think that's basically the gist of the to book. To be fair, that last bit is true. <laughs> I was in a very important meeting today trying to describe why a author called Dr. Strong reminded me of a character in a... Um, oh, my God, this is another stupid tangent. I should stop here. Basically, I couldn't remember the name of Adventure Time, which is... A, a crime and I, I deserve to be punished for that but um yes we're we're here to bring some much needed levity in these dark dark diseased trumpian post-brexit times when everything's gone to shit. uh how are you doing in your household nobody ill uh no no not yet not yet <laughs> <laughs> i've got obviously okay Will and Emma both back at school and college, respectively. So mixing every day with you know hundreds of people oh, in a dear. public space using yeah. public transport. Um, you know, rule of six, unless you go to school or college or have to go to work in a public place, yeah. um, or go to a grouse shoot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or what about going to the cinema? Yeah. Mr. Johnson says we should all be going to the cinema to save Cineworld, which is about to go under. Yep, that'll work. Uh, that'll work. Does, yeah, yeah. As, <laughs> does that is that does the rule of six apply? If there's more than six in the cinema, should I not not go and s- look? I'm sure cinemas can make their money with six people in each showing. It'll <laughs> 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 oh. totally save them financially. Oh. <laughs> so um, now some people think that uh, you know I, I've been working from home since March. Some people, you know, think that well, everyone's just sat around twiddling their thumbs, nothing to do, hours to burn. 
everyone's going through the entire back catalogue of, I don't know, think of a, think of a box set that's available on Netflix or what used what we used to call box sets. So you know, like, yeah. <laughs> we're currently working our way through the thick of it, which I which I, I didn't see first time round, for oh, example. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's this impression that oh yeah, people must have loads of loads of time to to burn, but it's like, well. The, the fact that we've done so few podcasts this year is nothing more than an indication of how much work I have. I mean, I know you don't do anything, but um, just, <laughs> oh my God, just so busier than ever, busier than, like, never able to fit anything like a podcast anymore. Yeah, I mean, yes, you do joke. And normally that's true, Darren, but actually at the moment it's not true. And I am continually busy every day. Good, I guess. <sighs> I've well, got, yes. Okay, so in, I mean, in keeping with that, uh, I, I feel I feel we've been. Uh, I, I've tried to just keep talking and I keep producing content like right now because I think we should try and get into trying to like quick podcasts, like because we've, we've right now we've only got right. An hour, so for example. so you haven't promised we'll try, but we'll try to try. Is that what you're we'll saying? We'll try to try to regularly push out uh, <laughs> these who does um, podcast work for yeah, yeah some we've got a we've got a three or four listeners um so now the agenda mm. uh, okay so uh news from the world of darren and john so John, yeah, you have produced. To see if I can dredge it from memory. I definitely saw a piece of art that you did recently. I've done a few, <laughs> as is my want, because yes. I'm an artist. Yeah, I decided to stop thinking about what I was going to paint and just paint sauropods. It's uh -huh. been quite uh, liberating, not thinking too much before you start, just picking something off a list and doing it. Um. Also, I'm finding sauropods anatomically interesting at the moment. I think that with some of the re-evaluations of their posture, you know, how vertical the neck was, even though we're moving in that direction more, that perhaps it's even further so. Yes, that's very nice. Yep. You're showing me a model of, what is it? Is it a well, it's, it's, supersaurus or something? It's Diplodocus. It's the yep. 2017 Safari Diplodocus. It's very nice. And what? Yeah, and what would what would look odd to us like five years ago is this massive depth yeah. to the neck, which has been done specifically to you know elevate the neck base as per the Vidal et al. work that you are alluding to. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Well, I wasn't really going anywhere, so that's okay. But yeah, so it's kind of interesting painting sauropods. I think I'm going to keep doing it for a while. Um, and there's aspects of their paleobiology that you know we're not. We don't depict very often groups of youngsters, which I did. Thinking which about, we've been talking about on yeah, the podcast since indeed. episode seven. Yeah, something like that. I've been thinking about doing some reconstructions um, from trackways. You know, we've got groups of sauropods moving in trackways, and you occasionally see paintings of that. But um, I think that can be done a bit more. So yeah, to actually get the proper size disparity in groups of sauropods. Because a lot of the time, I think we're still stuck in sort of a mammal um, mindset where all the adults are basically the same size, which I think is, we know from trackways, is, is not the case. <laughs> 
some are drastically bigger than others. I yes. really like the little cartoons in the one of Martin Lockley, uh, probably one of the most prolific workers mm. when it comes to cataloging dinosaur tracks. He's produced several books, and I think it's called Tracking Dinosaurs. It's the one with the Mark Hallett Coelophysis on the cover. There's a there's a really nice a couple of diagrams where. Uh, he shows like the 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 actual you know well the actual trackway shows and then the dinosaurs are reconstructed based on the size of the trackways and you first of all you don't ever have in any recorded sauropod trackway you don't have that thing that's been mentioned a few times in the popular literature which is the babies safely tucked away in the middle of the head you don't you never have that it's kind of it is kind of more random um, and also you don't have particularly small babies with uh, the tracks of large individuals anyway but you have like three or four like mega individuals you know kind of like 50 ton behemoths sort of 30 meter long things sort of in the front or at the edges and then you have like 50 ones that are sort of like three quarters that size then you have like another 20 that are like half that size so uh which actually reminded me of what you've got in your um uh bird dropping uh sauropod uh painting the um <laughs> the <laughs> the da- okay dazzle camouflage yeah I wasn't sure if you were going for bird droppings or dazzle camouflage. Yeah, the the um the title, dreadnoughts and all that was not enough of a clue. I didn't read that. I just remember the picture. <laughs> so, yeah, no, you I, just I, look I, at the pictures. Yeah, I don't do words. Um, I absolutely okay. Uh, not intending here to stroke your ego, but I absolutely love the ho- deliberate homages to um, you know classic work of uh predecessors so your mark hallett crossing the flats reimagined i'm absolutely in love with that i think that's fantastic um and the gersha uh how do you say is john john gersha is it gersha i say gersha? but Gerchi? i don't know actually and yeah um yeah despite talking to people who know him i can't remember what they say mm. no anyway. i've forgotten yeah, yeah. anyway so the Hallett, Hallett one, so again, for those of you who aren't um, paleo art um, nuts, for, I always, I mean, there's a phenomenal amount of blue in this painting. It's, a, it's, a, it's the most profound kind of landscape painting by Mark Hallett from, I think it's about 1987 or something like that. Yeah. And um, it shows uh, Mementisaurus, which is a famously long-necked Jurassic Chinese sauropod, but it was imagined at the time uh, to be a um, like a member of the Diplodocus family. So it's got a Diplodocus type skull and its neck is shown as being semi-horizontal. Um, that's 1986. And it's got classic elephantine wrinkly skin. And it's also shown, uh, you know, referring to what John's saying, it's shown in like a mammalian style because it's what looks like a mother with a calf that's about, I don't know, a quarter of her size. Um, and there's also some very Padian-esque pterosaurs in it as well, narrow wing membrane pterosaurs. And John has... As was the style at the time. As was the style at the time. Oh, yeah, and they're walking across mud flats. So there's like a you know, conifer forest in the background and they're walking through like shallow water. It's really nice. I've seen the original. I remember it from the Dinosaurs Past and Present exhibition. Well, John has only gone and reimagined that in a modern styling. And of course, if you... You know, if I just, I just said that Hallett depicts the, the Mamichisaurus there with a horizontal neck, as was often depicted for diplodocid-type sauropods, you've gone and shown it with the vertical 
the kind of neck that we think those kinds of sauropods now had, um, which therefore means that you can't have it as a landscape. <laughs> no, exactly. So it's it's got to be tall now. Yeah, I yeah. had to completely change the uh, composition, which is good in some ways because I didn't want it to just be a copy, right? Um, yeah, sort of, oh, here's your painting updated. I wanted to sort of play around with the composition as well. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's a I beautiful really... painting. I mean, Mark Hallett's work in that book is really nice. Um, and I would recommend, because I've been doing a few of those, the Gertie one as well, um, you can still buy dinosaurs past and present secondhand. And it's, you know, I'm looking on Amazon here, it's £11. So in America, it's probably even cheaper. Um, you should get it just for the history of it. And it's like so many nice pictures from all the, you know, the classic artists who got their start in the 70s and 80s. And um, yeah, <clears throat> there's it's, so much it's... good stuff in there. Yeah, there's two volumes. That's yeah. volume one. Volume two is the one that's used more because it's got the Greg, the famous 1987 Greg Paul um, rigorous how-to guide on uh, dinosaur restoration, which we've probably mentioned before. It's very dated now, but it's yeah. still it's, you know, classic work. And the other and, thing about it is that the um, printing is superb. I mean, the color balance and stuff of the images... I didn't realize how good it was because it was my favorite book when I was a kid. But when I saw the same pictures in other books, I realized that they had they've done such a good job. It really what massive effort must have gone into getting this thing right. It's the best, it's the best, still the best reproductions of most of this work I've ever seen. Anyway, sorry. That is true. Um, well, uh, and these two volumes actually um, come off the back of a traveling exhibition, which uh, started in, I think, New York. I can't remember if it went east to west or west to east across the US, actually. It either started in LA or New York, you know, the two cities in the United States. And um, that was a joke. And then it started in 1986, 1987 or so. 86, then, I think, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then it did visit, um, I think, Edinburgh in Scotland. And then it came to London in 1990 or 1991. So I've written about this exhibition at Tetrapod Zoology fairly recently, probably about a year ago, because I saw it. <laughs> I actually I actually have seen like over 100 original Greg Paul pieces, uh, lots of these Mark Hallett pieces, things like original Charles Knight's, William Stout, the Dinosauroid and its accompanying uh, Stenonychosaur model by Ron Seguin. Um, I've, yeah, I've, I've, I actually got to see all that. Um, oh, and Robert Backer's running Dinonychus and his, you know, charging chasmosaurs, all that kind of yep. stuff. That was all in in that thing, in that exhibition. And um, and his Mimi Barasaurs. Well, they're not Mimi. They were the beginning of the meme, weren't they? Yeah, the Raisex uh, Barasaurs. As I, as I said in the Tetrapod Zoology article, I, I distinctly remember seeing a whole load of famous pieces of paleo art, um, but I also don't remember seeing a load of others that were definitely there mm. and and what and that's one of them i don't remember i don't remember seeing backers um yeah uh, erect necked barosaurus even though they must have been there um so yeah uh I, 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 if we have covered this before on the podcast apologies but there is a there's a, a tetrapod zoology article where i try to get together as many images of the exhibition as i could on seeing it in 1991 um as is often the case with temporary exhibits at museums photography was strictly forbidden so i only took two illegal photos and of course today i really you know i was 
I got no idea how old I was. I was, I was a teenager. I didn't want to break the rules. Today, I really wish I hadn't. I wish I'd taken loads of sneaky photos because <laughs> yeah. um, worth it. <laughs> it was totally worth it. It, it would have been. I, I probably wouldn't have been caught. Obviously, it was back in the days of um, you know like actual film. So I probably only had like twenty four photos to play with. But um, yeah, I, I, I wish I had because you know I, nowadays I don't think you could ever get to see a lot of those pictures they disappeared into private collections um mm. or are certainly scattered all over the world anyway so yeah, getting them back together would be well it was such an effort at the time right you should imagine it was a big yeah and we big deal at the time and on that note we should say it was down to the Cherkuses, uh stephen and sylvia Cherkus, who were the the, the leaders of this Mm. And um, Greg Paul actually left a very long comment on the Tetrapod Zoology article explaining, you know, how it all came together, which was quite interesting and useful. So, um, oh, that's interesting. I must have not seen that. He he added it like months and months after the article had been published. So after like you know the discussion had died down. But but uh, <clears throat> go and go and see it because uh, yeah, oh, well. his, his comments interesting. Um, so yeah, that was a big deal. And there, there have been um, you know there have been a few uh, paleo art themed exhibitions since then not 1991 when it when it finished touring but um none of them of the scope or um significance in terms of you know the 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 historical value of the works um and uh i think we've we've mentioned once or twice the idea of like putting pulling something like that together again i mean um who knows if it if it could be possible but it would be phenomenal for something like that to um yeah, happened yeah, yeah. I, I think mean, something could be done, um, but yeah, yeah, certainly not right now. Certainly not. Obviously, <laughs> we're talking about things air quotes returning back to normal, and who knows if that will ever be a thing? It probably won't, given the given the politicians that we're under. But um, uh, yeah, uh, and, and there's a, there's a bunch of things that seg on quite nicely from this, and let's just see where this goes. Stop, stop me if you want to talk about something else. But um, firstly. Um, I am thinking about this whole stream of things a lot at the moment, by which I mean paleo art, your Greg Paul style, you know, dinosaur renaissance stuff quite a lot because um, as I may or may not have mentioned on the podcast, but I am putting together a book that's mostly devoted to that kind of stuff. I've got like the rest of the year to finish it. it's sort of like a little encyclopedia, but I am like mostly concentrating on this kind of like pop culture interface style thing. I, mm-hmm. I, I hope it works out. I haven't finished it yet. And I mentioned the dinosauroid there. Now, um, this is, this is very fresh in my mind because I just listened today to the, um, you know, there's this annual giant, um, science fiction, meeting called Worldcon. Uh I think I think it's annual. It might not be annual, but whatever. There's a regular meeting called Worldcon and it's huge. We we went to the one well actually I was presenting together with Memo uh, in a speculative biology workshop at one that was held at the Excel Center in London. I, I know I know you came along for Wasn't so, it called something I think it was called well, that Worldcon was, it was called the whole something. Thing, yeah the whole thing's called Worldcon and that one they give it they give it like a sub name according to its um you know its location or something so it wasn't called Worldcon; it was called like london con or something and they've just had one that's called Eurocon. and i don't uh, and of course it's been digital this one 
Well, Dan Benson, um, author and uh, spec bio aficionado, he uh, put together a, a workshop thing, uh, discussion involving myself, Memo, uh, Simon Roy. Yeah, we uh, we 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 spoke about um, like everything to do with the, the world of speculative biology. It was it was uh, released um, like last Friday. Uh, today's the 6th of October. Uh, mm. You had to you had to register for the meeting to um um the thingamajigs. Yeah, yep. the things. But um <laughs> but, but uh, we had calls in that to talk about obviously the ideas that people have had about um the evolution of intelligence in non-humans and you know humanoids in science fiction and whatnot and you know obviously had reason there to mention the dinosauroid this 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 uh, Dale Russell thing which 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 i'm linking so so worldcon has just eurocon has just happened so that's the thing that's relevant to recent going ons and i was talking about paleo art and the um dinosaurs past and present exhibition as you know i think of the dinosauroid there because i actually saw the model there and always kick myself for not photographing it illegally as, as i said earlier um dale russell the creator of the dinosauroid uh, died, um, I believe, at the start of this year. I've forgotten the um, the dates. Oh, did and, he? Uh, I didn't know. That. Yes. Yeah. And so, as a consequence, a special multi-author um, issue of well, a, a multi-paper, you know, Feshrift volume is being put together for him. And myself and Will's Tattersdale, Will's Will Tattersdale. I, I, I've never. Don't think I've ever tried to say his name quickly before. You and you know who I mean. Yes, yeah, I do. Will that guy? Will. <laughs> Will Tattersdale, we've um, we've done a um, a manuscript, uh, a technical paper on uh, the dinosauroid project. I'll obviously talk about it more when it's published. It's in review at the moment, but um, it was really good fun, and we learned loads of stuff that I didn't know before about the backstory to the dinosauroid. I've got loads of information from Ron Seguin. I spoke to him a lot. I'm pronouncing his surname incorrectly, no mm-hmm. doubt. I don't know how to say. There's because there's an accent in it on the on the e seguin, seguin, yeah. But yeah, lo- loads loads of cool backstory stuff. So let's okay, plant a flag in that, yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a future episode because um, I, I feel that's of uh, broad interest. There's loads of cool stuff for the dinosaurod project that hasn't been covered before. The same old tat does tend to be covered when everyone talks about it um, since 2006 when I. Uh, did a couple of articles about it you know it's very common for people to criticize the the whole um, notion of smart and big brained animals being humanoid and therefore there should be you know other solutions to you know what these animals were like in form we've discussed this on the podcast before uh, so there's that well that's pretty familiar but there's a l- whole bunch of other stuff we'll come back to that um what else is new in the world of the conway conway <laughs> Or John Way, as you're known in some circles. Um, yeah, I got a new bike. That's very Ted Zoo. It's that's, a good story. That's very Ted Zoo related. Yes. So the, the well, I was just riding home with Jenny, and um, a man, a little guy in a what is it? Is a the the long like caftan? Is that right? Is that the word for those sort of? <laughs> I think caftan, something like that. Anyway. Um, it's relevant because he was a little guy and he was super enthusiastic. And he said, oh, I love your bike. I love your bike. 
And I sort of turn around and says, do you want to sell it? And I hated my bike. It's a folding bike. <laughs> I hated it. It was so slow. I, You know, Jenny's got a real bike. So when I was trying to keep up with her, it was always like, pedaling as fast as I could. And it'd be cruising along at a very relaxed pace. Um, so I hated it. I wanted to sell it. And so I said, uh, sure. You know, okay, there's someone that wants to buy my bike. I want to get rid of it. I said, 50 pounds. And he says, oh, oh, make me another offer. And I was like, you're meant to make me another offer. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> after much negotiation, we got down to 10. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I asked him how much money he had. And he mm. said, 10 pa- on him. And he said, 10 pounds. And I said, okay. And it turns out he only had six pounds. <laughs> so I gave it to him anyway. Turns out he can't really ride a bike. He was trying to get on it and he was kept falling like side to side and like he clearly couldn't get his feet on the pedals and um, <laughs> his, his clothes were catching on. It was a step through bike, you know, it's like a, uh, it's a folding bike. So it's not the crossbar in the middle. But even so, he's... <laughs> His clothes were getting caught on the crossbar. I mean, it was pretty funny. But anyway, there we go. So I sold my bike. But that left me without a bike. and I need a bike. So I had to buy one almost immediately, which I got on eBay. Yeah. That's which a is story. an insane chopper bike. Yeah, I've seen the pictures. Very suave. So very relevant to Tetsu. Anyway, let's move on. Have I told you about my, uh, my, my adventures with bikes and, and how I've renounced bikes as the work of Satan? You had done. a pretty bad accident on a bike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hilarious accident. But uh, oh god, it was so it was it was the best kind of accident. It's like the kind the kind that leaves you with a really good story. And I think we might have covered it as in one of Uncle Darren's anecdotes. Um, mm, yes, you're right. It might be one of the um, Uncle Darren's. Yeah, yeah. I I, I, I I went road surfing and blacked out and broke things and had a hole in my face and the bike. <laughs> <laughs> the bike was fucked, <laughs> which is the punchline to the Uncle Darren's anecdotes. Um, and you've never ridden a bike since? <laughs> no, like I say, I've renounced bikes as the work of Satan. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with Satan, I mean, but um, <laughs> do you know why I had this terrible accident? It's because I can't tell my left from my right. <laughs> so in a in a time of... Uh, when a split second decision is needed, <laughs> which one of these brakes is the back wheel? I can't remember. I can't remember. So I squeezed the wrong one. <laughs> and uh, whoop, up in the air I went. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe tell the full story another time. Um, moving on, um, I should talk about the National Maritime Museum, uh, Cornwall. NMMC, as we call it, uh, because my Monsters of the Deep um, uh, exhibition uh, is open. And uh, if you are... Now, of course, there's all kinds of problems because of, um, the obviously, COVID and stuff. But um, I would say that if you're able to get to Cornwall and if you're interested in cryptozoology sea monsters or less niche if you're interested in marine biology and the story of you know the scientific discovery of marine life 
then uh, you really will enjoy this uh, exhibition, which is you know one of these grand years in the making, uh, very well funded things. It's the biggest and most ambitious um, exhibition that the NMMC has put together. Um, I was uh, one of three uh, curators, so I'm a co-curator and co-designer of this thing. And um, it basically tells, uh, I haven't yet written about it at Tetrabod Zoology. I haven't had time. It, it officially opened on March the 16th. So we all went down to Falmouth for the opening just in time for lockdown to uh, to sit in a house for a week and not go anywhere. Um, did get to see it, you know, as it was being put together. And then, of course, it was dormant for the whole of the summer because museums were completely closed. Then it, you know, reopened in... Um, uh, either late August or September, I can't remember. I've just in time for second lockdown. Just in time for second lockdown. Just in time for obviously, you know, the 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 state that museums are in right now is is no joke. You know, things are pretty bad. Anywhere that's relying on the summer glut of visitors is ba- basically they're doomed. You know, they haven't made any money at all this year. So um, they're going to have to, they, they either have or are shedding staff or they're going to have to, and many of them will not survive. Many museums will close. So this is not a laughing matter if you're interested in the um, perpetuation of society <laughs> um, and uh, the, 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 the storing of the things that we want to see, you know, uh, kept. Um, uh, th- this is a, a big, a big museum. So, you know, their situation is not as bad as that of like small local ones. But um, I, I don't I don't really know how, how things are going to pan out in the long term. But um, um, I, I did go down there yeah, a couple of weeks ago uh, because uh, Her Royal Highness Princess Anne was visiting. And um, obviously I had to, you know, take around the exhibits and, you know, chat with her and stuff. Well, actually, you know, my my co- co-curator, um, uh, uh, Stuart Slade, was actually in charge of Her Royal Highness Princess Anne. But uh, I did get to talk to her and show around you know, bits of the exhibition. And, um, yeah. Hoity-toity, Darren. Hoity-toity, yeah. Um, we've, you know, I'm really, really proud of this uh, exhibition. It's a, it's a big flipping deal. Uh, I forget if I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but it's one of those things that you're working on it all the time, but working on it all the time can mean that, like, you go a day or two without working on it, or some days you only work on it for a few hours here and there. So it sort of feels like, although it's happening all the time, it's kind of in the background when you're doing other stuff, as a, I, I am. And um, it's uh, it, it's it, it's not just about sea monsters, but it starts out, you enter, and it's about... Um, it's, it's, I should emphasize it's only the European story. Obviously, it's you know centered on Cornwall, the Cornish story. So it's like um, uh, if you were alive in the 1500s, 1600s, you know, what did you actually think about the seas? You know, people seem to have believed in like the existence of all these kinds of monsters. There's all these famous maps showing sea monsters. Did people literally believe that? We've got like a gigantic... Um, blown up version of the Carter Marina, the, the famous Olus Magnus 1539 sea map covered in monsters um, and associated stories to do with, you know, how people interpreted whales, stories about sea unicorns, mermaids, got a whole mermaid section. Um, and then, right, the general kind of thinking on sea monsters is people will tell you that 
And after then, and after that time, everybody knew sea monsters weren't real. And then there was science. And then they discovered the Mega Mass Shark, the end, the, the modern day. But now, of course, which is not true because, um, you know, certainly certainly from the well no throughout the 1700s right up to modern times you've had a whole bunch of writers and sometimes actual qualified scientists actually saying well no maybe those people from the medieval times were right maybe there actually are a whole bunch of sea monsters to discover um this view was dying out by victorian times but it was resurrected in the um mid 20th century by a bunch of people that we have discussed, certainly I've discussed, you know, loads of times in the, you know, over the years. Uh, Bernard Hoovermans and his friends, they basically developed this kind of like parascience. They claimed they were doing proper science, but it mm, kind of wasn't. Um, and they said that, no, we think they really, sea monsters really are real. And there's like at least nine species of sea monsters out there to discover. And so you've now, by the late 20th century, you've now got two like parallel strands of reality you've got um mainstream science uh promoted and um accepted by the vast majority of you know relevant qualified people who are saying that there's loads of stuff to discover in the oceans there's probably like a whole bunch of new big animals but there aren't sea monsters of the medieval ages you've got you've got that kind of taking you all the way to the present and then obviously that involves deep sea exploration and you know um submersibles and deep all kinds of stuff but parallel to that you've got bernard hooverman and the cryptozoologists who are becoming actually increasing they regard themselves as scientists and i don't mean this to be rude to them but they are becoming increasingly distanced from you know the actual mainstream like science certainly science where the funding is um and so our exhibition deliberately develops like two parallel streams at that point you can follow one stream which takes you through sea monsters as seen by the cryptozoologists the prehistoric survivor paradigm we've actually got a whole section a whole area of like bernard hooverman's and the nine sea monsters we've actually got an actual uh, preserved coelacanth which is a big deal and then that kind of moves into pop culture and movies and whatnot. And then on the other side, we've got the story of the HMS Challenger, the first scientific exploration of, um, you know, uh, uh, deep sea life kicking off in the 1870s, which leads you all the way up to Boaty McBoatface and, um, you know, modern, like I say, modern, modern stuff. Um, and yeah, it's like a, a, a real, just, just amazing. I mean, really. <laughs> I say I say amazing. Like, hey, well, I did such a good job. I, I'm just I am so happy with all the stuff that we managed to pull together. Because obviously, it's not just me. It's me working with, um, well, s other other people. I mean, we've got um, a whole load of deep sea uh, preserved animals that were. They are there thanks to Dr. Tammy Horton of the National Oceanography Centre here in Southampton. Uh, she's in charge of what's called the Discovery Collection. So there's. You can see like viper fishes and deep sea, um, like you know, vampire squids and giant isopods and uh, sea spiders, all those sorts of things preserved. Got a whole load of that, loads of preserved specimens, and then all these historically important things, like one of those uh, Jenny Han. Well, we've got a bunch of Jenny Hanovers. We've got um, uh, a, a Fiji mermaid. Uh, killer whale skeleton, like various models of sea monsters. Like I say, the the coelacanth. 
uh, AEC Lecanth, um, and, and a whole load of other stuff. So, Will there be anything available for people who can't make it to the exhibition, which no. obviously is <laughs> um, the vast, vast majority of people? Uh, well, um, there's, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what, what answer you're looking for there. I mean, there's merchandise you can buy online. There isn't anything like a virtual tour or a guidebook. Um, I think ordinarily, in, a, in an ordinary year, there would be, but this hasn't been an ordinary year. So... Um, uh, no, at this at uh, this point, um, and there's obviously discussion about this becoming a travelling exhibition. It's it's at Falmouth in Cornwall until early 2022, definitely. But beyond that, what happens is not yet decided. Oh, I see. So it's going to be there for a long time. So many, many more people will get the chance. Oh, to yeah, see yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Which is which is itself. Um, you know, if you borrow like you know things things from museums like historical documents, we've got we've got a whole bunch of like medieval bestiaries and you know famous books that show sea monsters, and they've always got um, you know limited loan times. So uh, we've borrowed um, you know some some famous old books from like the British Museum, and it's like you know given that the museum was closed for like five months, can't we extend the loan period? Like nope. We need it back. Sorry. So, um, you know, that's the sort of thing you don't think of, but it does affect what museums have on display at the moment. Um, that think things will have been off show for, for months and months and months. So. So, yeah, that's uh, that's been a big part of my life for the last definitely two years and possibly a bit more. Um, I, it's also connected to uh, one more sort of cu current thing I want to mention, which is um, I've. Uh, in addition to like, writing blog articles kind of when I can in the background, I've also started doing these uh, gigantic threads about monsters on Twitter. <laughs> Twitter I've... mega threads. Yeah, Twitter mega threads. I call them Tetsu crypto mega threads. Um, I forget how the idea came to me. I mean, you know, people for years before me have been doing what you could call mega threads you know people tell a whole story in like a hundred or a thousand tweets <laughs> and it's a it's a really engaging and um successful way of telling a story any story i mean i've found myself reading through threads about things i've got no interest in you know don't care about and it's like this is just really good it's like oh they what's what you know just just it's the new listicle listicle yeah not familiar with that term what the top ten? This they were called listicles. All oh, those things. Like, yes, yeah. it's like well, you know, it's just a tweet. I can read a tweet. Yeah. Oh, there's another tweet. I can read another tweet. Oh, I can read another tweet. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to oh, this blog article is like long, man. <laughs> it's like a I'd thousand words. I'd have to scroll. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like. I don't, mm. it, 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 like the text the text is there you know i write the text first mm -hmm. and the, so the text can be recycled for any format you know it can be made into a blog article can be can become part of a book or something you know in the future but um to break it down into like uh, 500 tweets or whatever and chuck in pictures to keep it visual that's what i like to do um i found this quite rewarding thing and um I have so far, you know, all the parts of this series have been, here's a famous monster photo, which, again, you know, we've covered this sort of thing on the podcast before, and I've also covered it on Tetrapod Zoology and in various of my books, like Hunting Monsters. 
Um, like I find that people generally know, oh yeah, that's that Loch Ness monster photo from the 1960s. That was a fake, wasn't it? It's like, well, yeah, but there's a really interesting backstory to it, and and you know, your average person or even your your person that's quite interested obviously doesn't know all the twists and turns of those stories. Where if you if you've become pretty immersed in that field and have obtained the copious literature such as it is and, and i've gone to some trouble to do that then yeah it's like all these stories have all these images have got really interesting backstories which uh twist and turn all over the place involve kind of crazy characters and crazy inter I, I shouldn't use the word crazy that's ableist uh they involve all kinds of unusual and peculiar uh interpretations <laughs> which um i think i think the word crazy is appropriate here because it is kind of crazy behaviour. Even if I was engaged in it, I think this is kind of crazy. We're faking a, <laughs> we're fa- we're faking a Loch Ness monster. This is a kind of crazy thing to do in your life. You know, most people, you know, you say it like you haven't done it. <laughs> go to work and you know, <laughs> sit in an office again. and yeah. type or whatever. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm I'm off. To, <laughs> yeah, I'm off to fake a, fake a um, cryptozoological animal. I mean, good luck to him. I say. I love these stories. They're really, they're well, pretty entertaining. A lot of them. I agree, and 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 um, you know the psychology and background to why they happen or why they're a thing is a big part of the story. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you saw the thread on the Mayaka ape photo, which is this, you know, like taken in a photo, two photos actually taken in Florida of this big shaggy like orangutan type animal uh, standing. Oh, you should you you like that one because. I made a I made a point there of saying that um, you know so far as the uh, investigators looking into this story could tell that and that's people like Lauren Coleman they weren't able to find a hoaxer they weren't able to link the um, you know the the original anonymous letter that comes with the photos um, doesn't lead you back there's no paper trail taking you back to anyone that you can pin as the hoaxer and there's no indication anywhere that like the photo was sold or that it was linked to like the creation of a theme park or that someone down the road is selling the mayaka ape chocolate bar or yeah. something you know there's there, there's no there's no obvious thing so so from a kind of uh, rationalist cryptozoological perspective one would find themselves thinking, well, there's just no motivation for a hoax, so surely it can't be a hoax. Yeah, as we said before in the the episode we did about Loch Ness Monster and Tim Dinsdale, it's like, you know, we should assume the people here are, you know, honest, good folk. They don't, there's no reason for ordinary people to lie. And it's like, well, no, because, okay, I haven't personally hoaxed any monster photos so far as I can remember, but I'm pretty sure that if I did, part of the reward, if not, if not the reward, would be sitting back and <laughs> look at all these people believing my uh, belief. Oh my god, they really, they really bought it. You know, oh god, this whole book's written about it. Um, I think you would. I presume that one would revel in the fact that um, it's been like you know become part of the canon. It's sort of like been embraced by the people that are really into this stuff, and they're actually analysing it. Whereas in actual fact, all we did was we just found an old rug and uh that's uh yeah i mean i i don't understand that sort of argument because surely most people under would understand the thrill of 
faking something like that and everyone talking about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I like the idea of doing it. I think mm-hmm. it's a bit mean in some ways. It's certainly not honest. So, But obviously it's tempting, isn't it? If the opportunity came up <laughs> and you're with the right people who also wanted to fake something, uh-huh. it's a lark. It's fun. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Read, read between the lines. <laughs> so... John yeah, was a Bluff, I don't, Greek, I, Bluff Greek 1967. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, any future you know evidence of cryptids coming from me will be 100% genuine. <laughs> no. no <laughs> these, any... these statements these statements have no bearing on my future, <laughs> yeah. future evidence of cryptids. <laughs> That'd be uh, any, any, <laughs> any cryptozoological evidence pertaining to... Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't do the small print. I'm trying to do some hilarious small print. <laughs> Like tickets not to be taken eternally. <laughs> uh, um, yes, not <clears throat> talking nonsense. Um, all right. Um, do we want to talk about new sciencey stuff? Because there's a ton of it. Uh, we could really quickly rattle through some things. Before time's I up. don't want to quickly rattle through a whole bunch of things. I think we need a little bit of a meaty discussion about something. Will you say that? Um, all right. Should we? Should we? I'm not saying crazy. I may, but maybe like ten minutes on something rather than trying to rattle through a bunch of things at two. Well, minutes. we've got we've got twelve minutes. Yeah. So shall we discuss naked pterosaurs? Yes. Okay. Let's discuss naked pterosaurs. That's a good discussion because I and, know a little bit about it, but you right. actually know more because I know, you were there at the talk. I know so, a lot about this. Yes. Okay. This. So. Uh, and I've got to be you know, polite to the individuals concerned because I was accused of being really bad and horrible towards them, and which is why I, I posted like a semi-formal apology. <laughs> and if you saw that at the end of my tweets, I did. Um, okay, so what happened is uh, last week a press release came out from the University of Portsmouth, in which it was said that two highly respected and brilliant. Um, leading scientists of our age, Dr. David Martell and Dave Unwin, <laughs> both of whom we know quite well, um, they said, scientists have found that pterosaurs were naked skin. They weren't like fuzzy and furry after all. And here's some artwork we had done which shows that. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> what? I thought the evidence for pterosaurs having these fibres forming a, uh, a pelt... Um, by the way, side note, a lot of people seem to think that integument means fur and feathers. Integument is just the stuff on your outsides. So even if you're like a scaly animal, that's your integument. Even if you've got nothing on your outside apart from naked skin, that's integument. Doesn't You don't have to have feathers or fuzz or whatever. Um, so they're saying that, that the integument of these pterosaurs involves you know, a pelt. There's good evidence for that. These f- structures that are now called pycnofibers. This press release said, no, no pycnofibers pterosaurs might actually have been naked skinned um i can't remember if i spoke about what went down at the svpca symposium on vertebrates paleontology and comparative anatomy held uh uh ride i think the isle of Wight last year but david unwin gave a talk there and said that you know it's it seems that at least some pterosaurs or maybe all pterosaurs he's not you know committal on this maybe all of them uh, don't have pycnofibers, and that the structures which people have said are pycnofibers are degraded, 
collagen hmm, fibers or something. Where have we heard that before? Hmm. <laughs> so for, for, those, for those of you who don't know, what John is alluding to there is that among the those who don't want birds to be dinosaurs, they say that uh, the... They, they, they obviously they've chopped and changed their minds over the time, but they've uh, you know, been vague on this. But they've said that a lot of the fibres on the bodies of non-bird theropods are actually degraded collagen fibres as well. Now, pterosaurs, as you'll know if you know anything about pterosaurs, have got um, uh, super fine rod-like structures embedded within their wing membranes called actinofibrils. They're not present throughout the wing membrane. They're only present in parts of it. But it's and their their actual um, composition is not entirely clear. There's, people have got different ideas on what they're actually made from. But um, that if they if the wing membrane grades and those fibers come out, they probably do look like long hairs. So um, in a published paper, so not a press release, in a published paper, Martil and Unwin say that the structures in one pterosaur specimen is an unnamed aneurinathid from Jurassic China. We spoke about it when it was published last year. Um, they said that the alleged complex pycnofibers in that specimen, published by Yang et al., they said that... Um, those complex uh, structures aren't pycnofibers. They're probably degraded actinofibrils. I think that's what they say. So it's like, wait a minute. So your technical published paper doesn't say what your press release does. Their technical published paper doesn't say that pterosaurs were naked. Certainly doesn't say that all pterosaurs were naked. It says that the complex structures on one pterosaur specimen have possibly been misinterpreted, and their paper was um, had a published response by the original authors, who showed, like, fairly convincingly, if you're impartial on this issue, they showed that, well, in actual fact, you know, these structures um, contain melanosomes, and you know, like little pigment packages, and a bunch of other things, which basically do prove that. No, they are integumentary fibers. They are hair-like structures, and that's sort of like so. So, so it's the not only has the scientific claim been effectively answered, but the scientific claim is very, very specific. It's about one tiny detail, and it's not this broad brush. All pterosaurs could have been naked, kind of thing. So, um, I used my knowledge of what went down at the conference last year to say well, that although these authors, uh, Unwin and Martel, are not saying in the paper that all pterosaurs were potentially naked or lots of pterosaurs or some pterosaurs potentially naked, that is actually what they think because that's actually what Dave Unwin said at the conference. He got a bit of a hard time in the Q&A afterwards and I, 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 again, I think the criticisms were pretty sound. I was one of the criticizers, <laughs> actually. But um, uh, Maria McNamara, for example, came up with a whole load of stuff that, um, you know, effectively, you know, uh, disputed this this claim. But f from correspondence, I can say, no, I'm not going to say what I say what what was happening in correspondence because that's confidential. I, what I can say is that at least part of Unwin and Martil does think that that at least some pterosaurs were naked. 
even though that's not what the actual technical paper is about. So therefore, the press release is at least partly honest. Yeah. <laughs> because I didn't see the talk, and neither did our audience, mostly, I should think. Why do they want this? Why do they think this is true? Because even if you had the lack of evidence and some fibres have been misinterpreted or whatever, why would pterosaurs be better off naked? What's the, what's the reasoning behind this? Again, I don't want to be too mean, but it really feels like gaslighting. It feels like, like who knows what we think, because we've now said everything you could possibly say. Um, I kind of am on board with the idea, which is very common in science, that every now and again you should just go around and reinterpret the evidence for something that we generally accept as right. You know, that's a fairly good idea. Yeah. And in some conversations, uh, these authors have said that. They've said that, you know, we've we've now gone full on board with like fuzzy, furry pterosaurs. Are we absolutely sure that's right? And um, uh, in his talk at SVPCA, Dave Unwin basically said that of the sort of 30 key cases he was aware of, it's are they definitely convincing? And his take-home point was no, they're not convincing to him. So when it was put to him at the conference that, well, um, they're convincing to me, <laughs> which is the sort of thing that other people would say. He's like, yeah, well, that's just you, isn't it? And then you had people say things like, well, do you accept that pterosaurs were, again, broad brush term here, air quotes if you want, you accept they were warm-blooded, yeah, yeah, endothermic and and therefore they would need to be insulated. He he came up with stuff like, oh, it's really warm in the Mesozoic. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry, that is completely bogus and unsatisfactory. And I, and that's, that was where I came in. I said, I said, well, you know that, you know that the, the, the Chinese locations, this is probably known to, you know, specialist researchers, but during the early Cretaceous, these Chinese locations that have yielded these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, literally hundreds of small fuzzy pterosaurs and small feathered dinosaurs, those places were cool or cold with an average temperature of 10 degrees C. So this idea, which, you know, all due respect to Dave Ullman, he was sort of pushing in the talk, which is, you know, it's Alan Fiducia, Brian Ford style view of the Mesozoic, that it was like permanent 37 degrees C, year round that is just not in keeping with any evidence that we have yeah and i think that this is um what is a bit frustrating about that stance of well i'm just going to go around and reinterpret the evidence and is it really that all that convincing and then okay but you had to fudge all this other stuff to get this to start to work right even if <laughs> Even if we agreed that the specimens weren't convincing, and they are, um, you've got a bunch of other problems here which this reinterpretation doesn't solve. If it was solving something interesting, then I think we could have a discussion. But it just doesn't seem to be. It just seems to throw up more and more problems, which is the sign of a failed hypothesis. Um you know, that you have to start making excuses or reinterpreting more and more and more to get it to fit. That's a that's um, a valid point, because I mean, the, the of course, the irony here is that back in the I think uh, I've forgotten late 80s, or early 90s, there was there was the charge from naysayers like Alan Fiducia that pterosaur 
integumentary fibers again were you know like products of taphonomy they were you know like wing fibers or something and one of the people that sort of helped to show that wasn't correct was david unwin who said well the evidence from sordes this little jurassic pterosaur from kazakhstan or kyrgyzstan sorry um no that that demonstrates these animals do have a genuine pelt and uh, and a thing that again was raised at svpca was and again this has been over this again before with with the theropods is these fuzzy uh, non-bird dinosaurs and pterosaurs from places like Liaoning in China. Show me how they're conspicuously different from a fossil squirrel from Mesel in Germany or, you know, whatever, you know, fossil rodents and cats and beavers, whatever. I know a beaver's kind of rodent. You know, I'm just coming up with names. Here. Fossil mammals, yeah. where there's like obviously no one doubts that they have... Ah, uh, well, Darren, do they not doubt? Can we not doubt these things? Is it really all that convincing that fossil, all the fossil mammals were, you know, had fur? I mean, come on. Yeah, fur probably only evolved in the past. Maybe we should reinterpret them as well. I, I'm wondering what the strategy is here. Is it to, because it's not a very convincing case, why are we rehashing this? Why get everyone to think about this rather than some other part of pterosaur paleobiology, which we might be a bit shakier on, right? It feels like one of the more certain things. It doesn't feel like a particularly interesting thing to attack <laughs> in this way, you know, in this uh, sort of postmodern, well, do we really know anything sort of way? <laughs> yeah, um, to be contrarian. Yeah, to I be contrarian. contrarian. <laughs> yeah. It just feels like... Mm, yeah, it didn't really make me think. Sorry. Mm. And that's sort of the the best that can be said of these sorts of things, like obviously taking a wrong position or something. It should make you think about it. It should make you think about your evidence and um, uh, in a way that you hadn't thought of before, maybe. Um, but I don't feel like this really does. I mean, as you point out, even Dave Unwin has been... <laughs> has provided the counter-arguments. And, yeah, um, so it's a bit frustrating. But I, I don't think it'll go anywhere because concentrated effort would be required um, and more papers would be required. Well, this... So this initial and I paper... I don't think this is forthcoming. Yeah, th- th- there will be there will be other papers. I, I know that as a fact. But this initial paper has been, like, really quite... Again, if you're impartial, you don't have a, 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 a pup in this fight or whatever the phrase is, um, dog in this battle or whatever, um, if you look at that response to their paper, it's pretty compelling. It's like, oh, okay, they make the claim. I'm going to make the claim. Yang et al. Smack it down. Okay, done. So other papers are going to come up and are going to make the same. And I think they'll be effectively responded to because it's going to be the same kind of case, I think. If they get past peer review. If they get past peer review. But if you know what you're doing, anything can get past peer review. Um, if you're prepared to, you know, lower the go, – go under the limbo of uh, respectability – I don't know if that's an analogy that works, but um, I would like to say I would like to say that that Unwin and Martil, highly respected, brilliant pterosaur workers, uh, are going down the uh, avenue they have here purely on the basis of um, I don't know what you call it, but like purely of like bumping into an interesting thing and then starting to think about it and saying, "Oh, I think there is a point here." I do think it would be nice to say that, 
However, <laughs> do you know what actually explains this whole line of research? And here we're going into very dodgy territory. Mark Witten. It's a matter of who is the greatest pterosaur expert of them all. Look at, go and Google the word pterosaur. Go into a bookshop and look for a book on pterosaurs. Go and look at some artwork or some new sciencey stuff on pterosaurs. It's Mark Bloody Witten, wall to wall. It's Mark's furry pterosaurs. Mark Bloody Witten. Mark Bloody Witten. And I reckon that they've had enough. They're like, I've had enough of these goddamn Witten pterosaurs. It's all rubbish. Let's prove that he's wrong. So that's what I reckon. So it's like, no, sorry, Mark. We're going to clip the wings and shave the fuzz off your pterosaurs. We're coming for you. Yeah, I mean... I'm not being entirely serious, but it's quite yes. funny. But I think that actually they are... Well, I know Dave Unwin better than I don't know Dave Martell, but you know them both pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Dave Unwin is a naughty man, and I don't believe he does everything entirely with entire sincerity, does he? Um, so yeah. <laughs> it's just really hard to know what to think about any of the arguments. Uh, I, I have got a bunch of emails from him, like from the day when it when the whole thing broke, and yeah, he's. I, I do think he's playing games, and uh, our time is up. So. Um, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Tetrapod Zoology podcast. Let's try. I mean, my weeks are busy. Uh, let's let's try and you know see if we can do these sh- short episodes again. Uh, thank you to those who are transcribing episodes. We've got the scripts in for a whole none <laughs> since asking about it but i know some people i know that some people have at least thought about it and that counts for something <laughs> uh, anything you want to say before we um um no no i can't really think of anything all right i want to do a reading so i'm gonna do a reading but like okay. uh, all right bye A reading from Monster of the Mere by Jonathan Downs. Then my mobile phone on the dashboard rang. Richard answered it and started to laugh sympathetically. It was Linda Matthews. She and Tim had intended to meet us at the Mere for coffee that morning, and we had been planning to talk through the next stage of the project with them after our meeting with Pat Wisniewski. However, it was not to be. Linda had gone into labour and with the best win in the world was not going to be able to do anything that day except for to have her second baby. I pulled into a convenient lay-by and Richard passed me the telephone. Much to my amazement, Linda was actually apologising to us for having, as she felt it anyway, let us down. I got quite cross with her and told her not to be so silly. There are far more important things in life than chasing for giant fish and having a baby is one of them. For someone in the early stages of labour to be even thinking about doing anything except for sitting back with her feet up and waiting for the midwife is completely ridiculous, and I told her that. I could hear her smiling on the other end of the telephone. She promised to let us know when the baby was born and then rang off. 
I slipped the automatic gearbox into drive again, and we were just about to resume our journey when the telephone rang again. It was Tim. This time he was being apologetic. I told him much the same as I told his wife a few moments earlier, but he insisted on apologising profusely for having stood us up. Again, I told him not to be ridiculous, and he laughed, promising to let us know when the baby was born, and rang off. As I told Richard before resuming our journey, I really am extraordinarily fond of Tim and Linda. He is, sadly, one of the most notorious men in contemporary Fortiana, and to my mind at least, his sordid reputation is ill-deserved. And is that why they didn't find the something-something they were looking for? Yeah, because of Tim and Linda's baby. 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 